Hey, our passage today uh, is Psalm 46. If you want to grab your Bible and turn to Psalm 46. And this is our goal for this morning. It's really our goal every morning. We want God's word formed in us. That's why we open God's word. That's why I'm not going to give you a bunch of clever how-tos and three steps to a better life and uh, all these kinds of things because those ultimately won't help you. What's going to help you is what we're going to do this morning, which is to open God's word and pray that it's formed in us. We don't want to be on a diet when it comes to God's word. We don't want to do a whole 30 on God's word, right? We want to eat it all up. We want to gobble it all up. We want to down it. It's like that sunshine out there today. We want to drink all of it in. Everything that it has to offer, we want to take it, we want to drink it in. Well, one of the questions we've been asking as we've been going through our Attributes of God series, we're in week three uh, this morning, and the question is this, it's what is God like? That's the question we've been asking as we've been learning about just some of his attributes. And again, we are just touching the surface of some of God's attributes. And so far, we've unpacked uh, in week one, the holiness of God, and then last week, the knowledge of God, being reminded last week that although God knows all things, and we can know some things about God, um, what counts in the end is that we're actually known by God, that we have a relationship with God that only comes from being declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so in Psalm 46, as we continue this series, we're going to see that not only does God know all things, uh, but he rules over all things and is in control over all things and is near to us when things feel out of control. This is what God is like. Okay, as we start to understand this thing called the sovereignty of God. So how do we define sovereignty? You hear this word a lot. Hopefully you've been in churches uh, in the past that have spoken uh, much about God's sovereignty. Well, how do we define the word sovereign? Well, this is what it means. God's sovereignty means that he has rightful rule over the universe. He has rightful rule over everything, okay? And under his rightful rule, and reign as a king. You think of the word sovereign, you think of sovereign king. Well, God is the ultimate sovereign king. And under that reign he has as sovereign king, there is nothing that falls outside of his will or control. Now, if we only apply earthly wisdom to that, okay, we're going to struggle with some of the implications that come up as we think of God's sovereignty. So in other words, if God rules over the entire universe, why does everything feel out of control? That's a valid question. And if you've never thought of that question, well, I just introduced it to you, especially if you're younger. So if you're somebody who's with us this morning, you're between the ages of six and 12, you never thought about that, I just introduced a conundrum into your life this morning. Your parents are gonna have to work some of that out for you after the sermon, okay? If God is in control, why does everything feel out of control? And what happens is, is that our tendency is to think that our vantage point of what we look at as control operating through the universe, from our vantage point, it must be proof that God has limited reign and that God has a limited lack of, and, and a lack of control. In other words, we say and sing that God is sovereign, right? If you just look, uh, glance over the words of the songs we just sang, I mean, you're going to see that there's a lot in there about the fact that God is sovereign. But we live like he's kind of a slouch, that's kind of what we do. So we can sing about God's rule and control, but we live like he's the opposite. And so one of the questions that we want to bring up today is, well, what if that was true? Uh, what if God's rule and control was in fact 
limited. In other words, like the way we live our well, the way we live our lives, which is to grip and to grasp and try to get as much control over everything that we can, because we don't believe God has that control. Well, what if that was true? What if we do that because in fact God doesn't have that level of control? Well, R.C. Sproul, uh, theologian, this is what he said about that. He said, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee then that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. So if God doesn't have control of all things, it means we don't know what the heck he has control over at all. So it's all or nothing when we speak of God's sovereign rule of control. Scripture affirms God's rule over all things. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135.6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Okay, so again, think of all the different areas that we don't even think about on a day-by-day basis. God is in those things, controlling, ruling over those things. In Job chapter 42, verse 2, it says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So because God rules and has control, it means that nothing that mankind does can tweak that. We can't alter that. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter eleven thirty six, it says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. That's pretty comprehensive. From him, through him, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So this is not somebody that just exists in the margins. This is somebody who is over all. This is the God we serve. So God rules all things, has complete control over all things that he rules. Now, when sin entered the world through Adam, the world then went into this degenerative tailspin because death was introduced into the picture. Now, that didn't put a dent into God's rule or control. It didn't alter that at all, but it does mean that we are suffering in a world that is reeling from the effects of sin, which again makes our lives, when we sin, reel out of control, of which God is still in control over. Starts to do your head in a little bit, right? The other thing to remember as we get into Psalm 46 is we don't know what God knows because we're living in this degenerative world from the effects of sin, being influenced by that. We don't see how things God allows will end up working out for good in the end. Now back in the, uh, here's an illustration. Back in the 70s and 80s, um, parents just were not nearly as concerned with the safety of their kids as they are now. they They just weren't, that was my era, right? I'm older, that was my era. I mean, I could roam the streets and the fields of our neighborhood in our town all day long. I, it's crazy, as long as I was home, by dark or dinner, whatever, whatever came first, right? I, nobody wore helmets when they rode their bikes because the mocking would have been more painful than the head injury. I mean, seriously. Under no circumstances did you ever put a seatbelt on in the car. That was constricting, right? That just didn't, that just didn't happen. So uh, me and my siblings, when we got to the ripe old age of about seven or eight, my dad being the protective and responsible parent that he was, what he would do this is he would get in the car, he would let us sit on his lap and drive the car, right? I'll let you decide if he should have been arrested for that. I don't know. Um, Here's my point, all right? I thought I was driving the car, 
All right, I'm sitting on Pops' lap. I had my hands on the steering wheel. But what I didn't realize in my ignorance, in my youth, was that my dad's hand was holding on to the bottom of the steering wheel and his foot was still on the brake and the gas pedal. Now, man, did I do some steering? I did. I did some steering, but I didn't really have control. And that was good, right, for everybody that was in the car, right? That was a good thing, right? So it leads us to this question. Again, we just bounce back to this question when we're talking about God's rule and control is that, is he really in control over all things? Is there, re like, really, R.C. Sproul? Is there really not one single molecule in the universe running loose? And so as you read Psalm 46 here, it presupposes for us that God does, in fact, rule and control all things. And because of that, and we can have confidence we can have comfort and we can have courage because he is present, because he is near to us in the ensuing chaos and lack of control in our lives. Look down at verse one in chapter 46. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So this is the psalmist's this is like a summary statement that he's making now for the entire psalm, for Psalm 46. It's like when you start a song with a chorus instead of a verse. This is what he's saying. He's saying God is our refuge, strength, and our present help in trouble. And the word refuge here, what it's describing for us is like a cliff. Imagine a cliff or a lofty place, right? Something way up high, reminding us of something that can't be reached and something that can't be Access. What the psalmist is saying here is that God is a safe haven when enemies are in pursuit. He's saying, God, you are my ultimate protection. There is no other earthly safety. There is no other physical strength. There is no other effectual lifeline that I have to reach for and benefit from in times of distress. He's saying only God's faithfulness is foolproof. Look what he goes on to say. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. What we see here is that God's faithfulness is foolproof. Whatever catastrophe, whatever cataclysmic thing, if the world should end, is what the psalmist is saying here. God is near. God rules over all. God has control. Only God's faithfulness is foolproof. And good golly, don't we know that? Don't we know that? How many of the foolproof things in your life have just proven faulty and foolish? How many of them, right? How many of them right now are proving to be that paper thin, right? I mean, how many of you had a job that just gets taken away with no notice and it wasn't your fault? How many of you have a friend who goes behind your back, damages your reputation? How many of you have had a marriage that has just flattened out, disintegrated? How many of you have been in an experience where churches failed or abandon you when you were at a point when that's exactly what you needed? And how many of you are experiencing health issues, right? Wasn't something you saw coming? Your health just takes an unexpected downturn? 
And here's what we know about our lives. Here's what God knows about our lives, is that they can be broken into. Like, our lives can be broken into. Like, we watch those Mission Impossible movies, right, with Tom Cruise. I think they're making, like, the 198th one this year, right? But, but we watch these movies because what Tom and the team are doing is they are breaking into near impossible fortresses, right, that are otherwise impenetrable, but somehow, somehow Tommy and the team, they find a way in. They find a way to break into something that should not be broken into. Our lives are not even that strong. Our lives can be broken into. We wish they were like the world's most secure bank vaults, but life has a way of proving that they can be cracked. Our lives can be cracked, but the psalmist is about to point out something that Paul assures us in in Romans 8.31 when he says, look, if God is for us, who can be against us? And this God for us reality is true because God rules over that which is out of our control, right? So we're gonna look at two things through this psalm. Number one is that God is sovereign though nature rages. And he is also sovereign though the nations rage. Let's pick up in verse two. It says this. We will not fear though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at his swelling. I just read that, but I wanted to read it again because this is dramatic, right? This is dramatic language for us. This is end of the world, Avengers, Infinity War kind of language here that the psalmist is using. If the earth comes undone, if the mountains get engulfed by the ocean, if the world collapses in cataclysm, in a cataclysmic disaster... If we fear God, we don't have to fear the undoing of his creation. That's what's happening right here. The psalmist is speaking to what most of us would consider to be the absolute worst case scenario. Something completely out of our hands and out of control, which is a natural disaster of global proportions. He's saying God's rule is so great, his control is so sure, that if the world should end, we are safe. Martin Luther said, if we perish, Christ must fall too, right? Because if Christ is holding us and we fall, it means that his holding wasn't good enough to support us. And it means that he doesn't have the kind of rule and control over us that we imagine that he did. Psalm 121 says this, it reminds us this deep, deep truth. Our help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. We just read and we just glaze over that. Who made, who created the very heavens and the earth that are surrounding us. So we are the result of his hands that also made the things that he created to surround us. So the Christian places their hope in a God who rules over our present earth and then at the same time has this beautiful future because he prepares a new heavens and earth for those who believe. Look in verse four. It says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Well, that sounds nice. So one of the fears here that the psalmist would have been speaking of, one of the great fears in ancient cities was that the water supply would be cut off. But what we see here is that in the future, in the future city of God, we find 
unending streams of living water that will refresh, refresh and replenish us. We find a place where God and his holiness dwells. A future country where God is with us at first light when morning dawns. See, because if God is any less than God, then we have the least of all hope of these things happening. But this is not what God is like. He rules over all and he is near to all those whose lives he rules over. So God is sovereign though nature rages. Man, we came from California. All it was was earthquakes and droughts the whole time we were there. I lived there for 40 years. Earthquakes and droughts. That's all I heard about. And then I came to Ohio and I just switched to tornadoes and blizzards. You know? I mean, there it is. You, you just, we just switched. We just moved, right? We just moved locations and we just have new fears now, right? New, new fears about what's happening to uh, our sense of nature, Right? But God is sovereign, though nature raises, is what the psalmist is telling us. Number two, God is sovereign, though the nations raise. Look what it says in verse six. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then he says in verse eight, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. So all the kingdoms of the world who seek after power in real estate, they melt, it says, under the voice of the Lord. They fall under the greatness and power of God. The world is not a fortress. God is a fortress for those in the world that he is with. That's what it's saying here. As he spoke the world into existence, he can just as easily speak it into oblivion. Do we know the kind of God that we are dealing with? Do we know the kind of God that has saved us? See how he works, it says in verse 8. See how he works. He has brought to desolation those things that were thought as being powerful. Wars end because he is in control of the means in which they're fought. The world is like a chessboard in the hands of God. He moves all the pieces. He controls all the plans of the people at will. And there are no arbitrary actions. Even when from our vantage point, it looks like chaos. And from our vantage point, it does look like chaos. Why? Because we don't have any control and people without control create chaos. But the Lord will still those nations that stir against him. Psalm 2 reminds us, says, Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. That's sun, S-O-N. So that's the psalmist warning the nation, saying, Hey, remember who rules over your rulers. Remember who's really in charge, right? It's not all the backroom deals that really have any effect on what's going on in our world. It's what God is allowing to happen through his sovereign rule and control. But it's okay because he will still those nations and he will still the people that comprise those nations. Look what it says in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now this verse, all right, has been hijacked a little bit by Christian coffee mugs 
and, and bumper stickers if we're being honest, but we want to look closely at the context. This is not a keep calm and, and carry on like t-shirt slogan. That, that's not what this verse is saying. This is the almighty God stilling the nation so that they know, that they remember, so that they become self-aware of who is sovereign over them. All right? And to get a parallel of this, we can go to Mark 4. Mark 4 is the story of when Jesus was traveling with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, decided to take a little nap, right? Decided to take a little nap while the, while the, the sea just, just came, just erupted into this just torrential storm, right? Jesus takes a nap and a life-threatening storm breaks out. The disciples wake him up and go, what are you sleeping? Like, do you see what's going on? How can you be sleeping through this? And with a word, Jesus says, peace be still, and the waters are stilled. The storm ends. It's like glass. But then he looks at the disciples and he said, help me here. Why are you so afraid? That's the first thing he says after he stills the storm, right? Not like you guys, okay, I mean, you guys get a little wet. Should I go grab some clothes? I mean, I got some rags in the back so you guys can wipe your forehead. He says, why were you afraid? Like, it's preposterous. Why were you afraid, he says. Have you still no faith, he says. And then it says the disciples were filled with fear. That was a good thing. And said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now listen, the disciples being saved from the storm was secondary to them being saved from their unbelief. Okay? They had built up the wrong fear. And it's not the storm you should be afraid of, fellas. It's that you have the Lord of all storms in a boat with you. So we have to ask ourselves, is God sovereign over nature? Is God sovereign over the nations? Well, yeah, because that's what the Bible says. But do we believe that? Are we living that out? Are we fearing the wrong things? Like, like if you're driving in your car tomorrow and you knew God was sitting in your seat next to you, would you become undone because the engine goes out? Like if God was sitting right there, if Jesus is sitting in the seat next to you, if God was in your house, would you become undone? Would you unravel when the basement floods and ruins half your furniture? Would that undo you if Jesus was standing right there? If you're a kid and you're in a classroom and you're on a playground, man, in the whole, the whole school rises up against you because you look a little funny and you dress a little strange. If Jesus was standing right there with you, should that unravel you? Should you come undone? If God was right next to you when you're laying in that hospital bed, if he was sitting in that chair next to your spouse or your loved one when you were laying in that hospital bed and you got that news from the doctor, if Jesus was sitting right there, would you come undone? Would you unravel? He is there. He is. Like he was in the boat with the disciples. He is there. That's what the psalmist is trying to get across to us. Again, this is what he's not saying. This brother is not saying, calm yourself, chill out, take another hot yoga class and get acquainted with God in the process. He's saying, God will still you. 
And when this happens, you will believe God because God stills us in our stirrings. So what we don't want to do is we don't want to read these verses on God's sovereignty, get all the way up to verse 10 and get to be still and then think it means that, okay, now it's up to me. Now I'm the one that has to gain control and still myself. That would be contradicting everything we just read about God's rule and control over our lives. What we know is that God will use stilling things in your life as the means for your knowledge of God's godness to increase and your trust in his trustworthiness to expand. And this is God-imposed stillness. And this is what it produces. It produces three things in our heart and mind. As God's sovereignty unfolds with greater understanding and greater grace, it, it produces three things. Confidence, comfort, and courage. Here's the first one. Our confidence comes from knowing whose side we're on. See, we think, let me repeat that. Our confidence comes from knowing whose side we're on. See, we think that the worst thing that can happen is to have our confidence shaken. Nobody wants their confidence shaken. We think that's the worst thing that can happen. But God likes to shake it. Why? Because he wants to reroute it. He wants to redeem your self-confidence, right? What is at the heart of your greatest fear? Ask that question to yourself right now. Just for a second, think about that. What is at the heart of your greatest fear? What is it? God has wired us differently. We have different fears that emerge in us. For some, it's change. Oh, man, my schedule, my routine, my location, my career, change unravels me. For some of you, it's a loss of comfort. For some of you, it's when you feel like your control is slipping out of your hands. For some of you, it's a way of life. Maybe you have to downsize. Maybe it's the news of the world leaves you constantly upset and unsettled, right? Because you just got your eyes grilled on Fox or CNN all the time. Maybe death. Maybe death is your greatest fear because you're somebody who's facing it. Because you are somebody that sees the possibility of it right here. Now here's what we don't need to do, okay? I need you to listen to me. We don't need to construct silly reinforcements for when these types of things and these types of changes come into our lives. One of the problems with living in a place where very little changes, these are the towns that we live in, is that when change comes, it can tend to unravel us, right? Because we live, we live in a town, we live in a community that, that feels very level, doesn't it? That's part of the reason why we like being here. And so what can happen is when these things come, we tend to go into isolation. We start scrambling for backup plans, right? We make knee-jerk maneuvers, not letting ourselves wait, not going to godly and wise people who encourage us and remind us that God does not send us out-of-the-office replies when we call upon him. He doesn't do that. What the psalmist is aiming at here is that God will remain with his people in the midst of trouble. He calls it out. He says, you're my present help in trouble. Romans 8.35 poses the question. It says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Paul says, is there anything in creation that has the power to keep us from the love and care of our creator? 
is kind of a rhetorical question because the answer is there isn't. There isn't any. Psalm 56, 8 through 9 says, You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call because this I know God is for me. And what we know ultimately is that in Christ, God provided a true refuge and strength and help in the greatest trouble that we could imagine having. Because Jesus descended to the earth and endured the trouble that culminated on the cross, we don't have to fear the world. We can overcome because he overcame the world on the cross. Our confidence comes from knowing whose side we're on. Two, comfort. Our comfort comes from remembering the city being prepared for us there in verses four through seven. Revelation chapter 22, verse one and two speaks of this. It says, and the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We remember the truer and greater city. We remember the truer and greater kingdom where God will dwell forever, of which he's beginning to establish right now. It's happening today on these concrete floors in those ridiculously comfortable padded chairs you're sitting in right now. This is it. This is the kingdom of God. This is the church spreading. God is dwelling in us forever already. A place where earthly kings and kingdoms have no power. No power left to have any destructive influence any longer. Jesus said this, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What that speaks to is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in our lives, reminding us of the comfort we have in God's sovereign rule and control, in our distress, reminding us that God will not be slack in his promises, but he'll give us rest. And sometimes we just don't realize we're thirsty until we get a sip of water and realize how dehydrated we were, right? That happens to me all the time. I don't tend to drink a lot, I don't just mean that like drink a lot, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not even going to try to explain that. I'm saying I don't, just, I don't tend to be a very thirsty person. I don't know what it is. My wife and I talk about this all the time. She's constantly walking around with a big, you know, 44-ounce glass of water or tea. And like, I, if I drink like two sips of water that day, I'm like, yeah, I feel great. You know, I don't know what that is. If there's a doctor in the house, help me with that, right? Because I probably have a little too much salt in my life. But I don't tend to know I'm even thirsty until I take that first sip of water and then I drink nine gallons, right? But I don't just go around thirsty, and that's sometimes how it is with us. We don't realize we're hungry and thirsty for the things of God until something happens in our life to cut at that reality, right? We are spiritually dehydrated until the Holy Spirit quenches our spiritual thirst. So what do we need to do then? Well, we need to return to the source. We need to return to Jesus. Jesus is the river who makes glad the city of God. Where Jesus is, God is, and we have great comfort knowing that because he rose from the grave, because he is alive, he is preparing a place for his redeemed people to be in the place where God is forever, and you know what? That helps us. That should help you right now. That should help you. 
That should help us when we feel like unforeseen changes will claim victory over us. Jesus overcame the world, and though we have trouble in it, he says you have trouble. The psalmist says you have trouble. The world has no power over the one who is in us, through it and with it. Our comfort comes from remembering the city being prepared for us. And finally, our courage comes from knowing that God can never be defeated. We can have courage knowing that God can never be defeated. Why? Because he sent Emmanuel, which was another name for Jesus, which means God with us. It's in Jesus that we have someone who is unfailingly with us and is our true fortress against anything the world can temporarily inflict on us because it's temporary. It's through Jesus that God has exalted among the nations and in the earth. Because God's work in this world, whether we see it or not, whether our vantage point is skewed or not, is always redemptive, right? He will destroy those things that destroy. They will all be stilled someday. They will all know that he is God. That is why we can have courage, because God doesn't shift in size. Listen, I need you to hear me right now. God doesn't shift in size according to how big we decide to make him. Our perspective is skewed like that. The less we see who God really is, the more we enlarge ourselves. And what have we been talking about ourselves and our rule and our control? It's not foolproof. It's foolish. And it ends in chaos. When we enlarge ourselves, we begin to see our problems as larger than God. And then we lose the courage we need to have in trusting him. You guys ever have those moments when you think you're in shape? Right? Until someone like Tim Black takes a photo of you <laughs> and posts it on Facebook. Now, what's upset you is that the picture, in fact, uh, doesn't lie. Okay? As much as you want to believe it's true, a camera can't really add 10 pounds. It just doesn't have that kind of power. Those 10 pounds are actual pounds. <laughs> but you know what that does, though? It allows us to realize that we've exaggerated our thoughts and opinions about ourselves, and we do that with God when we stop looking to him. One of the things that me and Melissa like to do when the weather is nice is just lay out a blanket, grab a book, and like sort of you know, gaze up at the sky under some trees. Um, man, because there's just something about being under such vastness that refreshes your understanding of God. You see just how expansive God is, even with our limited viewpoint, right? We look at the sky as far as we can even see it, and we can imagine, we can only imagine how much bigger and larger God is than even the, the limited view we have as we look up through the trees at the sky. It settles us, though. It stills us. It reminds and encourages me that all these unsettling things, they do not unsettle what God has purposed to happen before the foundation of the world, which was to build a church of which the gates of hell and my job and my future and my tragedies and my changes will not prevail in the end. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't find ourselves in valleys of suffering in valleys of persecution, it doesn't mean that we won't weep for justice. It doesn't mean we don't have godly sorrow and outrage for things that grieve the very heart of God. It doesn't mean that we don't look up to God in confusion and wonder and cry out to him in our pain and sorrow. 
it means that we do. It actually means that we do do those things, right? It means we never have to lose hope, though, when we do those things, because in Christ, God has planned a hopeful future for all those who trust in his son. It's because of Christ's sovereign rule and reign that we can have that kind of confidence, comfort, and courage, because God is the one who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as we end, I think it might be helpful for us to ask the question, we're talking about his sovereignty, talking about his rule. I think it's helpful to maybe ask this question. Why does God need to be great? Why does God need to be great? And if he really is great, how does that reality change how I live and breathe? Because, man, we sing about that. All glory be forever. That was singing about God's greatness. We sing how great is our God. We sing how great thou art but it seems like we try to plan and organize our lives to make sure we never have to see his greatness displayed in them. We are reminded of God's greatness because when we face great trials and great changes and great fear, we then know who is greater. Charles Spurgeon said, with God on our side, how irrational is fear? How irrational is fear, man? And I had a week in which I looked into the eyes of some of you and I heard your hearts and some of you are sad. Some of you are facing some stuff right now. Some of you are just being a little stubborn. Some of you are stirring. All of you need to be stilled. All of us need to be stilled. And I wonder... I wonder what kind of changes God will allow for you to stop fearing the wrong things and start fearing him who is the God of Jacob, it says, who made covenant promises with Abraham that were fulfilled in Jesus, who is a beautiful and unbroken refuge for us now and forever because the future has already been faced in Jesus Right? For those of us who are in Christ, our future has been faced in him. Will we stop stirring and will we be stilled by his grace? Will we be comforted by the glad streams of his spirit that rule over every molecule? Because this is what God is like. And this is the good news. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you still us. You sovereignly rule over every molecule of the universe, God. And yet us, in our limited capacity to even understand that, grapple and grasp and try to grip things, Lord, so that we can have a sense of assurance in our own power and in our own control. And it's foolish, God. And we confess to you the foolishness of that in our lives. And yet we know, Lord, that you are near to us even in our foolishness. You are near to us as we grapple with control, as we desire and seek to be controlled by you, and yet just struggle so massively with how to live that kind of life. So God, you are near to us. You are with us. You are stilling us. And even this morning, you take us through Psalm 46 as a way to further still us and remind us 
of your rule and control over us. So God, we pray as a church right now to do that, to rule over our lives. Lord, take us as your people, Lord. Meet us when we are standing on the edge of a cliff facing death. Lord, remind us, Lord, that you are with us, that your rod and your staff comforts us, and that you lead us down paths of righteousness for your name's sake, God. We know that this is true, and we thank you that you are for us. Lord, help us to know this, to breathe this, to drink it in. Help these words form and change us, I pray this morning in Christ's name. Amen.